This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. Our typical approach here is something called expository preaching, and and what that means is that we just walk through a text of the Bible, and we we almost always preach expositorily, uh, and usually we do that through teaching through a whole book of the Bible. And uh, there's a couple of advantages to that. Um, One advantage is for the pastor, the preacher, uh, because I don't have to walk out of here and think about what I'm going to preach on next week and spend half the week wondering about that. I've already got an assignment. The assignments are scheduled out, so I mean, the Lord can change that. We're flexible, but we already know what we're doing next week, so that's just easy for me. Um, But it's not just, we don't do it because it's self-serving and good for the preacher. It's really good for the church. It's really good for the church to have the discipline of going through books of the Bible because what that means is that you hear sermons that you wouldn't normally hear. Uh, If it's left up to the preacher to preach what he wants to preach on, um, unless he's a very interesting guy, he never preaches on what we're talking about today, people getting killed at church. That's not where he's naturally going to go. And if he does naturally go there, that should raise some questions. And so we're reading a passage of Scripture today that is sober, that is uncomfortable, that I've never heard a sermon on, or I've never, certainly never preached one, and I've never heard one on this passage before. I'm sure there's plenty out there. I've just never heard of one about it. Here's the context of what's happening. This is the life of the early church. The book of Acts is the birth of the early church. And the early church is in a period of great revival. The Holy Spirit has been poured out upon them, and the Holy Spirit is working in supernatural powerful ways. There are miracles taking place. Um, There are people coming to Christ. The church is filled with the Holy Spirit. Um, And the immediate context is this. The end of chapter 4 tells us that the church, verse 32 of chapter 4, is of one heart and soul. So they're united in affection, in purpose, and in mission, and in community. So the church is unusually united together. That's the first thing. The second thing is that the church is extravagantly generous. So what is the Holy Spirit doing in this revival? He's causing people to take their hand off their stuff and give it away. So people have been giving things away who have money. They've been selling lands and houses to provide for those who don't. So there's this generosity. Unity and generosity, a sign of revival in the church. So much that the end of chapter 4 we looked at last week said there wasn't a needy person among them. Because if someone had a need, someone else took care of it and met their need. So here's the context for what we're reading today. The last part of chapter 4 tells us this. It says people were selling things, and it gives us a specific example. Verse 36. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, they gave him the nickname, which means son of encouragement, A Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So that's the context. There's this guy named Joseph, whom they've nicknamed Barnabas, who shows up a lot in the book of Acts. And this is where we meet him. And he sold this field and given the proceeds to the apostles so they could distribute it to those who had need. Following that, we read today's text. Chapter 5, verse 1. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit 
and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately, she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in and found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband, and great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that, even, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, which speaks to us truthfully exactly what we need to hear. And we believe you have something for us today in this passage. We pray that you would lift our eyes, that we might see you more accurately as you really are. We pray that you might speak to us today, encourage us, correct us, sustain us, help us. We pray most of all that you would reveal the Savior to us through this passage today that we might see, uh, Lord, that we might see your glory. And I pray as well that you might reveal your mercy to us today, that we might see your holiness wed with your mercy, and that, Lord, we might be compelled to respond to you. Lord, I pray that you would fill me with your spirit to declare the truths of this passage accurately, and I pray that you would give us all ears to hear what you're saying through the word and hearts to respond and to obey. We trust you for this, Lord, and ask you to speak to us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this passage sort of has miracles of judgment and miracles of mercy in it both. I'm going to look first of all at the miracles of judgment that involve Ananias and Sapphira. There's not really a lighthearted way to kind of breeze in. Uh, to this passage of scripture. I mean, I don't have a joke to tell you to start off or I was down at the restaurant this week and, you know, you just don't casually walk into a passage that's this sober. So there's a sobriety about this passage and it's meant to sober us. It's meant to have a sobering effect upon each of us and it's meant to teach us something about God. All of the scripture teaches us about God, and this passage in particular has something to communicate to us about the nature of God. 
And there's some immediate things we can see right off the bat that it must have something to do with his holiness. It does. But I think it also has something to do with his mercy, and we want to look at that as well. So let's look at what actually happens in the story. We read at the end of four, Barnabas sells this uh, plot of land and gives the proceeds to meet the needs of the poor in the church. We then find out that Ananias and Sapphira do the same thing. They sell a piece of property, verse 1, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. So he does something that seems rather innocuous. It doesn't really seem that concerning. They sell property. I mean, that's a good thing, right? How many people sold nothing? How many people didn't participate in the offering for the poor at the church? Probably a number of folks didn't. But this couple actually gave something up costly to them. They sold some land. So it seems like this would be commendable. It seems like there would be nothing wrong with sort of keeping back uh, some of it. It says they kept back some. They only brought a part, verse 2, of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. So on the surface, this seems fine. But as soon as they begin to engage with Peter, we see that something's terribly wrong here. I mean, I don't know if this happened in a worship service like this, if it happened out at Solomon's Portico where people are gathered around. Uh, it, it must be some kind of a public environment because everybody knew about it. The, the, the results of this account spread. People knew about it. There's young men present, like the junior usher corps is around there to bury the bodies when they die. So there's some young people around, evidently. Um, so per, they come before the set it at the apostles' feet, um, so it says apostles, plural, so Peter and the others, a, some kind of gathering is going on, likely. And you can sort of imagine Ananias coming up, he's excited, he's got this offering to present, but immediately Peter starts interrogating him. Peter starts to ask questions about the offering. Look at the first question he asks, verse 3, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back for yourself part of the proceeds from the land? So he identifies what's happening. God God has spoken to Peter. He knows what's going on, evidently. And so he says, why are you lying to the Holy Spirit? Why did you keep back some of the proceeds? The second question he asks is this, and this is really important, I think, verse 4. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? He's saying the field is yours. This, is your, this was your field. You didn't have to give it. It's your property. It wasn't required of you by us or by anyone else. Wasn't it yours to begin with? So why have you lied? You owned the property to begin with. It was yours. And look at the next thing he says, verse 4, the second part. And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Okay, so the land was yours. You didn't have to give it. And once you gave it and you had this pile of money from the proceeds of selling the land, didn't the proceeds belong to you? You you didn't have to give all of that either. But you've lied and, and, and done something that is wrong. You've lied to the Holy Spirit when you could have kept or distributed part of it however you wanted. And then look at the last question he asks. Why, uh, this is the end of verse 4, why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to God, but to men. Notice that in verse 3 he says you've lied to the Holy Spirit. Now he says you've lied to God. So it's a statement that the Holy Spirit is God, first of all. There's a Trinitarian statement. It's not the purpose of the text, but it's an important insight from the text. That the Holy Spirit's God. 
So you have lied to God about this. You have, he used the word contrived. Why have you contrived this? Or contri- contrived something is to scheme something. Why have you schemed this deed in your hearts? Why did you engineer, that's contrived, why did you engineer this plan? You engineered this deceptive plan. And the results of the deceptive plan is that you lied to God. And as soon as Peter said this, Ananias falls over dead. Literally, he dies. Ananias calls the young man, says, let's bury him. They take him out and bury him. It is the first funeral in the book of Acts. It's the first funeral in the new church that's recorded for us. Cause of death, judgment of God. That's why they die, or why he dies. Three hours later, something very similar happens. Verse 7, his wife, Sapphira, comes in, and Peter asks her a question. Perhaps he's giving her an opportunity to repent. There really isn't a, a, a written opportunity in the text. It doesn't tell us that Ananias had an opportunity to repent. But he may have. But evidently she does because it has an opportunity. Because he says, verse 8, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. So Ananias has come and said, hey, here's the land. We got $50,000 for it, whatever it is. Here's the value. Here's $50,000, whatever the number is. So he says, did you sell the land for $50,000, the amount that, her husband gave, and she said, yes, for that much. Verse 9, Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. She falls over immediately dead, and they take her out, and they bury her right by her husband. And so this is life in the early church. Come to the worship service, somebody dies. Now, if we're really honest which based on this text, I would recommend we be. (laughs) If we're really honest, I think most of us would say, uh, what's going on here? What's the big deal? I mean, honestly, what's the big deal? It was their money. Peter already says it was your, the proceeds were yours. I mean, they gave, they probably gave more than a lot of people in the church gave. So what is the big deal? I mean, this kind of sounds trivial. It's almost like what we would call a white lie. Yeah, we didn't give it all, but we still gave. And it must have been, the text doesn't say this, but I was thinking it must have been a reasonable amount. If somebody knew about their land, if they had a $50,000 piece of land, people kind of knew what kind of land it was, and they came in and offered 500 bucks, would it be obvious to everybody like, whoa. So it must have been somewhat convincing it's not like they gave 5% of the value probably and kept 95. They probably gave a decent amount, we would assume. And so what's the big deal? It's a white lie. I mean, doesn't stuff like this happen in church all the time? Don't we do this kind of thing? Just sort of, yeah, not really tell it like it exactly is. Just sort of misrepresent it. I mean, doesn't this kind of stuff happen regularly? Why is this so serious that it costs them their lives? Well, a couple of things. First of all, it's serious because the sin is against God. He says here twice, he doesn't say, hey, you're deceiving me. He says, you're lying to the Holy Spirit. He's saying you're lying to God. Sin is always against God. And the reason I'm comfortable saying, that's not that big of a deal, and maybe you join me in that, the reason we're saying it's not such a big deal is because we don't see the, the, hor- the vertical, rather, the vertical nature of sin. We think, well, not anybody's really hurt by this. Matter of fact, some people are going to get food on their table because they gave some money. But we don't see the vertical nature of this. 
Look what it says that they did, verse 2. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part. He kept it back. It's a key word, kept back. It's a word that's only used a couple of other times in the Bible. It's used once in the Greek Old Testament. And get this. Here's where the word shows up in the Old Testament. It shows up with Achan. If you remember the story of Achan, the, the Israelites, the people of God, are coming into the promised land, and, uh, and they go into the promised land, and they're, they're defeating nations. And what, what God has said is that they're not to keep the spoils, but they're to offer them to him. So going to Ai, and this guy Achan keeps some of the spoils of the battle. And the Bible says that, that God that God's anger burned against Israel. That's what it actually says, that God's anger burned against them because of what Achan had done. So they go through this process. If you remember the story in Joshua 7, they figure out it was Achan that stole the stuff, and they execute him. And what was it that Achan did? He kept back. It's the same word. The, the, all of the spoils of the war were devoted to God, and yet he took what was devoted to God and he kept back for himself. The word also appears one other time in the New Testament in Titus 2, and it's translated pilfer. Keep back means pilfer. What's pilfer? Pilfer means to steal. So what it's saying is that he is stealing something and lying about it. He's doing what Achan did, the same concept, something devoted to the Lord, and he is keeping it back for for himself. So how is it that he is stealing and keeping back, pilfering? How is it that he's doing that with something that's his? Peter says, the land is yours. The proceeds are yours. So how can you steal from yourself? Well, what must have happened, and the text doesn't tell us this, but what must have happened is that there must have been some devotion of it to God. There must have been some commitment, some type of pledge. Perhaps they came forward and said, oh, there's needs. We will sell our land and we will bring it all to them as well. He said it was yours. You could do with what you want. But there must have been some commitment. There must have been some statement. There must have been some representation. There must have been some idea that what we have we're giving and that really what happened is the keeping back was a stealing of what was devoted to God. The keeping back was a pilfering. The keeping back was was also deceptive. It was a lying. It was keeping something they had devoted to the Lord and then it was lying about it. See, here's what's happening. They evidently want to give the impression that they have made a sacrifice greater than they have really made. They want to leave the impression that they have made a sacrifice greater than what they really have made. Consider the context. The Bible is written with a purpose, and sometimes when the reasoning and the motivation of people's hearts aren't expressively, um, explicitly uh, talked about, expressed in the scripture, sometimes the context helps us get an idea. And I think the context here gives us a great idea because the story of Ananias and Sapphira are written into the text and contrasted directly with Barnabas. What do we find out about Barnabas? We find out Barnabas sells land and lays it at the apostles' feet, and we find out the apostles give Barnabas a nickname. They recognize Barnabas. They don't call him Joseph anymore. They call him Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. He has done something, not just given money. We find out whenever in the book of Acts we encounter Barnabas, he's encouraging people. 
He's serving people. He's representing people like Saul. He's believing the best about people. He's bringing the grace of God to people. He's a very encouraging guy. It's not just that he gave money and encouraged that way. He was an encouraging guy, but we see that they give him this name. It's no accident that they give him this name and it's talked about three verses before we meet Ananias and Sapphira. So what are Ananias and Sapphira aware of? They're obviously aware that people are giving stuff and that it is being encouraged, and then in this case, it's being recognized by the leaders. He was esteemed. He was respected. He was godly. Ananias and Sapphira evidently want the reputation of giving sacrificially without incurring the risk that is involved in giving sacrificially. And so they keep back for themselves a section of the money, a piece of the money, a part of the money. They want a reputation for meeting the needs of others and promoting unity. That's what's been happening. They're meeting one another's needs. The church is united in, in heart and in doctrine and in mission, and it's being expressed tangibly by not a needy one among them. So they want to be known as those who are unifying with their generosity And yet, through their actions, they are lying and deceiving in a way that could actually tear apart the church. They're not unifying. They're acting in a way that could destroy unity. They want a reputation for building up the church when their actions will actually tear it down. Why do they do this? The text doesn't explicitly say why they do it, but you can see some, some motivations that lead to this type of behavior, especially with the Barnabas section, Kent Hughes suggests a number of possibilities for why they, and more importantly, why we can act hypocritically. That's what's going on here. It's hypocrisy. You've lied to God. You've said one thing and you're doing something else. You're being, acting deceptively. Hughes says maybe they want to be insiders to really belong in the new church. They're new Christians. Everybody's new Christians at this point. The disciples have like a three-year head start on everybody from walking around with Jesus. But everybody got filled with the Spirit in Acts 2. But he's a new Christian around here. There's no real seasoned believers in Jesus. And so the way it's working in the church, the church has probably 10, 15, maybe 20,000 people by this point from what it's telling us, maybe more. And uh, they're probably looking around and saying, well, there's this big group of people, these new people, And uh, maybe they want to be sort of in the inside core. How do you get in the inside core of the church? How do you get in the inside core of a group of believers? How do you win respect and esteem? Act godly can be the idea. Do something sacrificial. Lay it all out there for Christ. Make your way to the inside of the church. Maybe they craved recognition from the leaders. The apostles gave Barnabas the nickname. Maybe they wanted to be recognized as he had been recognized. We can all do all kinds of things. We can all do, we can all represent ourselves in differing ways when we're around those who lead us. We can all do that because we want to be thought well of. Maybe they crave the approval, the applause, the welcome of other people. Maybe they Maybe they get caught up in the bandwagon effect, he says. Everybody, or not everybody, lots of people are starting to give stuff away And it's just sort of exciting. Yeah, he gave something away and met needs and they gave something away and they gave something away and people were fed and cared for. And this is exciting. We're all in this together. We're in the mission of Christ. We're all in. We're serving. We're giving. We're helping. Yes. Until you sell the field, 
You said you were going to give it all, and then you got the money. It's like, wow, that's a little harder to part with than it was down at the meeting when there was the euphoria of us all giving stuff away. It could be that, that they just got caught up and they didn't count the cost of the commitment they were making. It could be really crass. It could be a crass attempt to make their way up in status in the church. We'll do something noteworthy, and maybe that will be a pathway to influence in the church. Give a lot, and you can influence the church. That wouldn't be the first time anybody ever thought that before. So it could be something like that. We don't know exactly, but what we clearly know is it's a sin against God. What we clearly know is that they were lying. What we clearly know is that they were misrepresenting themselves. What we clearly know is the nature of their sin was they were giving the impression that they had laid everything at the feet of the apostles when they really hadn't. So they were wanting to be known as someone who's making a greater contribution than they actually made. That's what we do know. The nature of their sin is lying and it's hypocrisy and it's stealing as well what was devoted to God. It, it, it's so unnecessary as well, isn't it? It's so unnecessary. I, I think what was happening here is that Ananias and Sapphira had ultimately forgotten the gospel. They weren't living in the good of the gospel. This is a gospel issue. This is a gospel issue. They are wanting to deceive others and build a reputation. And they're forgetting how God views them. See, sometimes we can do this sort of thing. We can be more concerned with having others think we are godly than actually being godly. More concerned that people assess us as righteous and holy than really bothering to be righteous and holy. And so there is this hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is a forgetting of the gospel. It's a failure to apply the gospel in every instance for the Christian. Because hypocrisy is an effort to be thought well of by others. Hypocrisy is a desire to be accepted by others and a forgetting that we're already accepted by God. That there's nothing that we can do to be more accepted by God. They can't bring more money to the feet of the apostles and have God accept them more. They can't do anything that puts them in a better status with God because they've already been declared, if they're Christians, the passage doesn't tell us if they're sincere believers or false believers, but if they're Christians, there's nothing that they can actually do that will raise their acceptance and their status before God. They can't be more righteous than being in Christ and accepted as in Christ. There's no better position than union with Christ, and they already have that. And so they should live free of reputation. They should live free of what anybody thinks because they're secure in what God thinks. But they and we forget the gospel, don't we? We forget about how we stand before the Lord. And we begin to look around and see how we stand before others. And so we look over at Barnabas and say, I'd like to be like that. God must like that. Other people like that. And so we try to be Barnabas rather than being us. We think our acceptance before the Lord, that we'd be more accepted before the Lord if we were more like so-and-so. That God would love us more if we were more like so-and-so. 
that God would like to hear from us in prayer and welcome us in worship and speak to us and care for us more if we were like so-and-so. But because I am who I am and God knows all my stuff, he's probably not that thrilled about me. See, we can forget of our position in God and then we can begin to crave what others think about us. The gospel frees us to be who we are. That's one of the greatest freedoms of the gospel is that I can come before the Lord and say, just exactly as I am, with all of my failures, <coughs> all my inadequacies, all my sins, God loves me. And Jesus died for those very sins. It's, it's that that qualifies me to relate to God, being who I am, acknowledging who I am, not being someone that I'm not. That repels, that separates me from God. My own you know, my own righteousness, my own dishonesty separates me. My own reality is, gra- is, is humility, and that grace draws God, draws me to the Lord. They're, we're free to not be someone else. We're free not only to be, not be someone else, but we're free not to be who we will be, but to be who we are today. It's not as if if I do a certain number of things, then a future version of me down the road God will accept. That's not true. God accepts us now as we are, loves us, has reconciled us in Jesus Christ. So the gospel frees us to acknowledge who we are. We cannot be any more accepted by God. So I have the freedom then to tell you who I am, or I should. You have the freedom to tell me who you are. We have the freedom to say, this is what I gave. This could have gone so much differently. What if the gospel, living in the light of the gospel, had freed them to acknowledge reality? What would have happened? I mean, play this out with me for a minute, if you will. What kind of things could happen? Well, here's one. They could come to the apostles and say, hey, you know what? Uh, We said we were going to give the whole proceeds of the land. We were very excited about that. The reality is we wanted to impress others. We can't really afford to do that. And so we want to acknowledge that in our own pride, we lied and we're tempted to just give some of it, but we're going to acknowledge that and we're going to give half of it. Peter said it was already yours to do what you want with. So we're going to give half of it. I know we said we're giving the whole thing. We're actually going to give half <coughs> because we, <coughs> we got ahead of ourselves on that deal. Or we wanted to impress everybody. Or we wanted you to think of us like you think of Barnabas. What would have happened? Nobody dies. The church isn't divided. The church is more unified because someone in light of the gospel has walked in honesty and they've walked in the light as we're in the light and they've had fellowship with one another. Walking in the light builds fellowship. Or what if they came to Peter and they said, hey, Peter, you know what? Um, We're really struggling. (laughs) We said we were going to give a certain amount and man, we haven't given it. And... We don't know if we can. I mean, to tell you the truth, we're really struggling with what we said and why we said it. And could you pray for us? Could you, get, get, could you counsel us? What do you think we should do? This is where we are. We're really tempted. We're really tempted to give a part of it and make you think we gave it all. And we're just going to acknowledge that's what, we're, that's what we're battling. It's ugly, but that's what we're battling right now. Nobody dies over confessing, I'm tempted. Well, what happens? There's unity. There's life. The gospel frees people to be real. The chains that, 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 that uh, tie us to love of reputation and hypocrisy, false representation, they're broken and the truth stands out. Hypocrisy is a sin against God. 
And that's what they do here. And it was unnecessary had they walked in the power and the light of the gospel. Same is true for me and same is true for you. So why was this so serious? Well, it was a sin against God. Secondly, it was a sin from Satan. Satan was the one who inspired this whole deal. It's the work of Satan. They, they made the choice, but it was the temptation of Satan. Verse 3, Peter said to them, <coughs> to Ananias, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? So, Acts 4, everybody's filled with the Holy Spirit. Acts 5, Ananias is filled with Satan. It's a contrast. What happens when people are filled with the Spirit? There's unity, there's joy, there's sacrificial giving, there's transparency, there's needs being met. What happens when someone has Satan working in their heart and tipping them? There's lying, there's deception. That's what happened. Satan tempted them. What a contrast it is. He deceived and lured and took in Ananias and Sapphira to do his work. I mean, here's the reality. Satan hates Jesus. Here's the reality. Satan hates the gospel. Satan hates the church. Satan hates revival. Satan hates the renewal that's happening in the book of Acts. Satan hates it that people are moving from darkness to light. Satan hates it that the poor are being cared for by those who have in the church. Satan hates the unity. Satan hates one heart and one mind and loves divided hearts and divided minds. Satan hates generosity and he loves stinginess. Love selfishness. Satan hates the truth being spoken and loves lies. As a matter of fact, the Bible says Jesus said that he is the father of lies. This is John 8. It says that you are of your father the devil and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. And so he comes against the church, comes with his lives, lies. And notice what's happening in Acts. There's a twofold attack from Satan. He is opposed to the church because they have gained traction. The Holy Spirit is moving through them. There is a movement of gospel life in Jerusalem. The mission is off. People are being healed. People are being cared for. People are being saved. It's glorious. And so he does two things. He attacks from without. We're not told specifically that Satan inspired the Sanhedrin, but let's take a guess. The Sanhedrin says, you may not speak under the name of Jesus under threat of something bad happening to you. That's the devil's work. So the Sanhedrin from out, the persecution from without, close your mouth, stop preaching the gospel, that's satanic. And now there is, explicitly we're told, there is a work from within the church. Satan is inspiring those within the church. So he is trying to work from within. And here's the reality. The pressure from without, the satanic attack from the without, is rarely as successful as the satanic attack from within. It's almost always more successful to hinder the people of God, to affect the mission of God, to distract the people of God, to separate the people of God. What happens in in outward persecution is oftentimes the people of God just gather together in desperation before the Lord, cry out to the Lord, and watch him do more. That's the story of Acts. But what happens here is there is this lying, <coughs> this temptation to lie in the middle of a revival and to hinder what's happening. John Stott said, falsehood ruins fellowship. 
Falsehood ruins fellowship. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, it's what First John says, that is the means to us having fellowship with one another. And so there is this temptation to walk in darkness. And so what happens when those seeds are sown in the, in the church, when lies are sown, deception is sown, then the crop that comes up is suspicion, suspicion, doubt, hypocrisy, mistrust, all kinds of things flow if this seed had taken ground and had begun to grow up in the middle of the church. It would have hindered them in a significant way. And so because of that, they believe the temptation of Satan. They show up. This is brazen. They show up evidently in a worship service. They show up at least in front of the apostles and say, yeah, this is it. This is what we have. We're here to give and to bless. They're coming into the presence of God among the people of God before the leaders of God and telling a bald-faced lie. It's so brazen. They must have thought nothing would happen. It doesn't tell us when Satan entered their heart what that means and what he said, but I think we can guess what he said. No one will ever know. No one will ever know. I mean, nothing's going to happen. That's what he told Eve. He told Eve in the garden, she said, we will die if we eat of the fruit of the tree. And Satan said, you will not surely die. Oh, nothing's going to happen. There are no consequences. This is always the temptation of Satan, and it's always a lie. There are no consequences. No one will ever know. And so what happens is he, he tries to make an inroads and to affect the church through Ananias and Sapphira. Whenever God is at work in a church anywhere that is preaching the gospel, anywhere, anytime, whenever the gospel is being preached and people are believing the gospel and there's a unifying effect in the people of God and there's generosity among the people of God and there's an effort outwardly to communicate the gospel to those who don't know, Satan will attack that. He will attack from without, and he will attack from within. And we often are surprised. I can't speak for you. I'm often surprised when it seems like there's some resistance from the enemy. We should not be surprised. We should be surprised and concerned when there's no resistance. Because when there's no resistance, there's nothing that is pressing into the kingdom of darkness. There's no reason to bring trouble. Just let the church be continued lulled to sleep. And their complacency making no difference in anyone's life. That's no threat. But here there is a threat. And so Satan enters his heart and Satan seeks to affect God's church. And God brings judgment. It's interesting that Peter in his own letter in 1 Peter 5 identifies this. I never thought about that before, but someone mentioned that that I read and said, you know, you wonder if Peter had this scenario in mind when he wrote the following. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. The devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. He devoured Ananias and Sapphira. This is a devouring that we're reading about. And so he tells them, be sober-minded, be alert, be watchful. He tells the church that the persecuted, Peter, he's writing to persecuted Christians, beware that there will be persecution from the, out, from the outside, and beware there will be temptations from the inside. And Satan will use deception and lies and hypocrisy as one means of destroying the church. And so there is this miracle 
of judgment where God does something that's unusual, a miracle in the sense that he does something that's not the normal ways of God relating with his creation. It's not normal that people die and are judged immediately for their sins in a worship service like this. But there's a result from it. There is really a, actually a good result. We don't know if Ananias and Sapphira were believers. But there's something good that happens in the church. Look at verse 5. <clears throat> it says, When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard of it. So those who heard the report, great fear came to them. Verse 11, And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. So there is something happening. The church does not grow familiar or casual or numb to God. Their awareness of God's holiness is elevated and the fear of the Lord, the awe of God. I mean, what was the next worship service like after this? At, offering baskets may have been empty. I don't know. Uh, you know, I don't know if anybody was giving that Sunday. Uh, let's get a couple Sundays under our belt and see what happens. We don't know what happened, but what in the following meeting, can you imagine walking into the next worship service, the next teaching time in Solomon's portico? This is a miracle of mercy. Here's what I initially thought about this passage. I initially thought verses 1 through 11 were about a miracle of judgment, of the judgment of Ananias and Sapphira. And verses 12 through 16 were a miracle of mercy because people are being healed, people are being delivered of demons in verses 12 through 16. People are lining up on the street trying to get in Peter's shadow, hopefully to get healed. So that's like a miracle of mercy, God doing these merciful acts. Hey, what happens in the first verses? That's a miracle of mercy as well. It is the mercy of God that everyone got an awareness of the fear of the Lord. Because that's what revival, when, when there's renewal and revival, that's what happens, is that everyone says, God is holy. God is holy. God is here. Stand in awe of God. He's present. God is real. That's what's happening here. See, when, when we pray for revival, when I pray for revival, I'm praying for chapter four. I, I'm thinking about God save people. God fill us with the spirit. God bring unity. God bring generosity. God give us boldness. God pour out your spiritual gifts. God do miraculous things that no one can deny it to. And we should pray for that stuff. But this is part of revival as well that's happening in the first church. <clears throat> it is an awareness of God. See, when God shows up at church, when God comes to church, when God is present in a manifest manner in the people of God, what will the results be? There'll be joy. There'll be freedom. Freedom from sin. There will be a heart for the Lord in prayer and in worship. When God shows up among his people, there will be unity. When God is reviving his people, there will be generosity. When God is reviving his people, there will be spiritual gifts on display, but make no mistake about it. When God is present, there will be a penetrating awareness of the holiness of God. 
when God is present among his people, consciences will be tenderized and people will be aware of the holiness of God and the presence of God. People will have an awareness, a sensitivity of their conscience. There will be a brokenness. There will be a repentance. There will be a fear of the Lord. Listen, when God is present, there will be an awareness of sin. Do not think there's too much awareness of sin. God couldn't be here. When God is there, there's an awareness of sin. But that awareness of sin is not to cause us to be condemned. It's to cause us to run into the merciful arms of God and treasure the forgiveness and the welcome that we have in the gospel to value the love of God who embraces us as a father that will not mean anything to you if you do not see the holiness of God. You want to talk about sin awareness? When people are dying in the service, everybody's aware of sin. There's too much sin talk in that church. People are dying because of sin in this church. Yes, yes, there is an awareness of the holiness of God. There must be when God is present. We don't tone that down. We don't, we don't rub off the rough edges. We don't present a God that is nice and, and the God of our own making, the Santa Claus God, who winks at Santa and says, it's no big deal, boys will be boys. We all know how it goes. A little hypocrisy is okay. That's not God. That's our invention of God. We don't approach God approaching him the way we want him to be. We approach him the way he is in scripture. And he is more holy than any of us imagine. He is immaculate in every detail. He is righteous. He has a blazing holiness. That when people encounter God in the Bible, it's not my buddy God. When people encounter the holiness of God, Isaiah and Isaiah 6 says, I was undone. It literally says, I came apart at the seams. I saw God. I started disintegrating from the inside. When John sees the resurrected Jesus, he's not slapping a high five. He's on his face as if he's dead. So God is, yes, he is holy. But his holiness is revealed to us so that we will see the great grace of his love and mercy in Jesus Christ. The holy God of the universe has made a way so that we can come in his presence and be welcomed and loved and cared for, that we can experience him as father. But experiencing him as father will mean nothing to us if we don't first understand him as holy judge the God who could actually kill somebody in the worship service and be justified in doing so. It's a miracle of mercy, and it's meant to cause us to come to God, to run to God, to embrace God, and to be embraced by him. What's the effect of this manifest holiness in the people of God? Well, look what happens in verse 13. It says, none of the rest dared join them. When there's real revival, it doesn't mean everybody's getting saved. It means that some people won't come within miles of the building because the presence of God is so real, they won't know part of it. They're scared. God's going to reveal who I am. But that's not what all, some people are repelled by the holiness of God. But look what happens. Verse 14, more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. So many people are saved during this. When the holiness of God is revealed, it produces a fear of the Lord which attracts those in Christ and repels those outside of Christ. So if you've never believed in Jesus and you're here today, 
I want you to know that this passage reveals something about God for you. It reveals that God is holy, and you are not, and I am not. And it reveals that one day, well, this passage doesn't reveal, but the scripture reveals that one day we will all stand before God and give an account of our lives. And if we have not believed in Jesus Christ and trusted him alone as our our Savior, it will go for us much worse than it went for Ananias and Sapphira. We don't know if they're believers or not, but all that happened to them is they die physically. Those of us who face God without Christ, if you're in the room and you face God without Christ, then it means that that you will be judged for your sins eternally, condemned forever and ever because we justly deserve judgment for our sin before a holy God. And we don't think of God holy like that so often as we see in this passage. But you need to think about that because that day is coming for you and it's coming for me. And you do not want to stand before God giving an account for your life on your own merit. You want to stand before God in Jesus Christ. You want to say, how can I be right with you, Father? I can't on my own sins, but I believe in Jesus. I'm here with him. And if you turn from your sin and believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior, you say, Lord, I believe in you alone, then all of your sins are forgiven. All of them are forgiven. And you're welcome to a throne of grace. You're invited to a throne. Standing before the throne of God is a good thing. Because you're in Christ, you've believed in him. Your sins are forgiven, you will live eternally with him. You today will have your sins forgiven, you can have your conscience cleansed by believing. But you cannot do this on your own, you cannot be good enough. You must receive the love and the grace and the mercy of God who died for you on the cross, Jesus, and was raised to defeat your sin so that your sins have no power over you, so that you can be free. You don't have to live You do not have to live enslaved. You can be free. So if you're not a Christian, I urge you to come to Jesus today and to believe in him. If you do believe in Jesus, what does this passage say to you? What does it say to me? Well, it says, I believe that we're to allow the fear of God to lead us back to his mercy. See, this is an unusual work of God. This is not a typical work of God. It's an unusual work of God in Acts 5. But that unusual act of God reveals to us the extravagant mercy that we experience every day from Christ. See, we can look at this and say, wow, what kind of God is this? I mean, mean, why, why are people dying in the early church for telling a little lie? That's the wrong question. Here's the right question. Why has no one died in the last hour and a half of this service? That's the question. Why have none of us died today when every one of us deserve that? Well, here's the reason. Because of the extravagant mercy and love of God, who has wiped away our sins, who has forgiven us, who has welcomed us before a throne of grace, who is merciful and kind, who is patient, forbearing, long-suffering, who delights in his people, who's working in us for his will and his good pleasure, who's causing all the things that happen to us, even the bad things that happen to us, he's causing them to work for our good, for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. He is showering us with material blessings. He is showering us with relational blessings. We're sitting here today with the word of God on our laps, freely gathered to hear a declaration of the grace of God. He is overwhelming us with mercy. And a passage like this that shows an unusual act of God, but a justifiable and righteous act of God, just reminds us that we are swimming in the mercy of God here. Why has no one died? 
because God is showering us with his mercy and his grace, because God delights in the worship of his people. But it stands as a warning to us not to grow familiar with the grace of God. See, we don't go through the hour and a half and say, well, no one died. Hey, no big deal. You know, it's like, hey, I mean, why would God kill any of us? We're great. We're doing him a favor by showing up here. That's not the result of it. The result is to say, God, you are glorious. You are merciful. You are loving. And you're, you're a revelation of your holiness from Acts 5 causes me to run into your arms and celebrate your mercy and proclaim you are a loving father. Look how you're showering us with your kindness today as forgiven people accepted by you. Lord, we are free by the gospel not to be hypocrites, not to impress others. We gather here today because, Father, you are impressed with Jesus, his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, and we come united with him. We come in him. We come because of him. We come with him. We come with your Holy Spirit filling us, Lord. And so we are free. We don't have to impress anyone else. We don't have to give a false impression of ourselves. We can acknowledge who we really are because you know. And everyone else is in the same boat. We can all acknowledge reality. We don't have to deceive one another. We don't have to look good in front of one another. We, we don't have to try to be accepted by one another because, Father, you have accepted us. This is what we deserve, but you have given us mercy and grace. And so we run into your arms. Your kindness leads us to repent. So we don't say, hey, we must be okay. Nothing happened in our worship service like that. No, we say, Lord, you justifiably could be acting the same way, but you're not. And so we run to you. His kindness leads us to repent us. Grace welcomes us to God and to his people, cause us to be real and truthful and honest. And that builds a unity. That builds a generosity. We're also to make no room for the devil. We're to resist him and to celebrate the grace and the forgiveness and the love of God. So this passage teaches us not to lie, teaches us to come gather with the people of God and be real, teaches us that God is gracious and merciful, teaches us that God Acts miraculously, we see that we didn't really cover those last verses so much, but teaches us that God acts in dramatic and merciful ways as we gather together. A couple questions as we wrap up. What would being real look like for you? If if a passage like this, if his kindness calls us to repentance, what would repentance look like? Where there's a move of God, there's repentance. Where there's a move of God, there is an awareness of his holiness. Where there's a move of God, there's joy and freedom and miracles and gifts and everything else as well. But where there's a move from God, there is, re- uh, there is reality. So what would being real look like for me? Where's God calling me to step out of deception and into reality? Out of reputation and into reality? <clears throat> out of trying to impress you so you'll accept me? And into God already accepts me so I can be real? the fear of him. Where's God calling you to rest in his acceptance and his love? Where are we striving? See, Ananias and Sapphira, they're keeping back. It's a, it's a striving to win status in the community. Where are we striving for status, reputation, any of that kind of stuff? And we're tempted. Where, where is that going on <clears throat> in our lives? The good news is the message isn't, hey, just start telling the truth and start being good. It's not the message. The message is the good news of Christ. God accepts you where you are. He loves you as you are. So in light of that love, be free to tell who you are. He already knows and delights in you. 
so we can know. You can know about me. I can know about you. And we can share the same grace. He delights in me. I want to share that in, with you and, 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 and give acceptance to you and have you express acceptance to me as well because of our status in the Lord. And when there's that environment, then we can press on and grow together in an environment of freedom, not competition, in an environment of grace, not comparison, in an environment of love. We can press on and grow in the Lord together and pursue him together in freedom, not in all kinds of bondages and expectations and all this kind of stuff. That's not what he has. They lied to God, and it was costly. Grace comes to us and says, don't lie, tell the truth. Be free in the gospel today. May he set us free, and may he stir us with both his holiness, the fear of the Lord, and the joy of the Lord all at the same time. How do those mingle together? I don't know. It's miraculous. God does it. Let's ask that he would do it here. Let's pray. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org.